Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Some people bring the class to the kitchen, and some people bring the kitchen to the class. <laughs> Next, we're going to have pots and fires in here. And so today is December 29, 2011, in Radhadesh. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Chapter 8, The Character of Bharat Maharaj, Text 17. Apikshem Asmin Ashramo Pavane Shashpani Charantam Deva Guptam Drakshyami. Word for word. Api. It may be. Shemena. With fearlessness because of the absence of tigers and other animals. Asmin. In this. Ashrama Upavane. Garden of the Hermitage, Shashpani Charantam, walking and eating the soft grasses, Devaguptam, being protected by the demigods, Drakshyami, shall I see? Just one note about the Devaguptam. So, although in the word for word, Prabhupada says being protected by the demigods, and he picks it up in the purport. In uh, Baladeva Jibhushana's commentary, he translates this as Krishna, that Deva is Krishna. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Alas, is it possible that I shall again see this animal protected by the Lord? Oh yeah, here in the translation it says protected by the Lord rather than demigods. Alas, is it possible that I shall again see this animal protected by the Lord and fearless of tigers and other animals? Shall I again see him wandering in the garden eating soft grass? So this is again Bharat Maharaj with his little fawn, his little pet deer, who's grown up and wandered away. Purport. Bharat Maharaj thought that the animal was disappointed in his protection and had left him for the protection of a demigod. Regardless, he ardently desired to see the animal again within his ashrama, eating the soft grass and not fearing tigers and other animals. Maharaj Bharat could think only of the deer and how the animal could be protected from all kinds of inauspicious things. From the materialistic point of view, such kind thoughts may be very laudable. But from the spiritual point of view, the king was actually falling from his exalted spiritual position and unnecessarily becoming attached to an animal. Thus degrading himself, he would have to accept an animal body. Translation again. Alas, is it possible that I shall again see this animal protected by the Lord and fearless of tigers and other animals? Shall I again see him wandering in the garden eating soft grass? So here Prabhupada says, from the materialistic point of view, such kind thoughts may be very laudable, but from the spiritual point of view, the king was actually falling from his exalted spiritual position. So let's look at this word laudable. So laudable means worthy of merit or praise, uh, something that which we give credit to, meritorious. So all of us want to do something that's good and meaningful. I mean, even criminals want to do something meaningful that will gain the merit and the praise of their contemporaries. They want to be known as a good criminal. So within our, within our circle, with whatever circle of people we associate with and whatever standards of good we follow, we want to be known as good. I mean, you could say the good has an absolute connotation. People ask me sometimes, is such and such a school good? And I say, I don't know. You have to tell me what's your criteria for good. What do you consider to be good? But each of us wants to do something 
that we feel is meaningful and good and worthy of merit. Nobody wants to have a useless life. Anybody want to have a useless life? No? So there's a, a story someone sent me just a little while ago of this man who had led a very degraded life. So he'd been a heroin addict and a criminal, and he ended up marrying a woman who had formerly been a prostitute and a heroin addict also. And they both contracted AIDS. So at one point, his wife was dying of AIDS. She was in her final stages. And she asked him if she could go on a motorcycle ride, on his motorcycle. So he thought, well, why not? It's her last wish, and she's dying. So he took her on a little ride around the parking lot of the hospital. And then she said, no, let's go on the street. She's just wearing one of those little paper hospital gowns. And she was carrying her IV of morphine and different drugs on one of those poles that have wheels on the bottom, you know. And she's carrying this on the side of the motorcycle. So they go out in the street. She says, let's go on the highway. You know, so they're on the highway. And, you know, she looks practically like a skeleton. And there's this, you know, half-naked skeleton lady on the motorcycle holding her IV up in the air. And he said that what what he realized when he came back from that ride is he thought, I'm actually a good person. Here's my, you know, my wife who was a prostitute and heroin addict and is dying of AIDS, but I took care of her. I stayed with her. I loved her. I fulfilled her wishes. I'm a good person. I don't need to stick heroin in my body anymore. I'm not a, I'm not a low person. And it changed his life. So everybody wants to think like that. No one wants to have low self-esteem and think, oh, I'm just rotten, lousy, and the only thing I deserve to do is just sit around and watch television or... We want to think of ourselves as good. Uh, and this is a part of the nature of everyone. Adina Dayal Prabhu was speaking yesterday how his daughter likes to imitate him. So the children, they naturally, they want to please their parents. They want their parents to think well of them and say, very good. In fact, this is the process of socialization. You know, what your parents, what your teachers, what your friends smile at, and praise you for and reward you for, you'll do more of. And what people look down on you for, you'll do less of. And, of course, there's many people who manipulate this tendency. The advertisers like to manipulate this tendency and convince people that certain things are actually good or bad. And, of course, governments also do this. There's, and school systems, they're designed, in fact, to manipulate the human being to a certain standard of good and bad. But the general idea of wanting to do something that's laudable, wanting to do something that's pleasing to others, wanting to do something that has merit, that has value, is part of our nature. It's not something you can say, well, I'm just not going to care about this anymore. And this is what makes the essence of a culture, what we call cultural norms or social norms, or what creates a culture altogether. Is a culture is really a certain definition of what is good and what is not good, what receives merit. And those of us who want to become cultural engineers, like we presented, or actually someone else presented, <laughs> um, our presentation of organizational culture to the GBC a couple years ago, and we were talking about how culture is formed. And at the end, we talked about how to change a culture. So the GBC were very interested in that. How do you change a culture? And it's through what you recognize, what you give precedence to, what you reward. Just like in ISKCON, generally, the only thing we announce in front of the whole community is what? Book scores. Right? We're trying to create a social, certain social norm that if you want to do something meritorious and laudable, you should go out and distribute books. On rare occasions, we list other people's services. Maybe for a festival, we may list who was cooking and who was making the flower garlands. And we also, in some temples, list big donors. So like in Vrindavan, they'll do that. If someone gave a very large donation, they'll go in front of all the devotees, in front of the deities, and announce the person's name and give them a garland and pray to the deity for them in front of the whole congregation. So this is one way you establish social norms. Here's what gets merit. Here's what gets recognized and what doesn't get recognized, what kind of things don't get any merit. And pretty soon you learn. Also, what gets status? 
What people get status, you can tell I'm preparing for my sociology course. What kind of people get status in the organization, right, or in the culture? And then we mold ourselves accordingly. And, of course, we can understand from this the value of association. And not only do each culture, does each culture have a slightly different set of norms, but within Vedic culture, each varna had a different set of norms. So if you're in the Ksatriya varna and someone says to you, you foolish rascal, fight with me. If you don't fight with them, then you're ostracized. But if you're a brahmana and someone says that to you, if you fight with them, you're ostracized. If you're a brahmana and someone insults you and challenges you, you're just supposed to say, all blessings to you, be happy. And if you're ecstatia, you're supposed to fight. So there were different ways of being laudable in the different ashramas. I remember here, we were talking about having a business degree, and one of the devotees wrote <laughs> a, something that was supposed to be uh, an advertisement for the degree. And they wrote, come to Radhadesh, learn devotional business so you can live with just the bare necessities of life. <laughs> I said, Prabhu, no one's going to take the degree then. You know, so that's the Brahminical standard. So if a brahmana is living very opulently, right? If a brahmana has a closet full of 500-euro cashmere sweaters and gold-plated um, bathroom fixtures, not that we're talking about anybody in particular here, then there's, it's not meritorious. You look at that and you say, what kind of a brahmana is that? But if a vaisha has that, that's what's to be expected. Right? A vaisha is supposed to be generating wealth for the society, and part of their motive for doing that is that they get to enjoy some of that wealth. So if someone says, I'm a very expert vaisha, and you go to their home and it's a little hut, right? Prabhupada talks about this. If a person says, I'm very rich, and their clothes are shabby, and their home is shabby, you know, you're not going to believe them. So my point is that what's meritorious is different depending on your varna, and it's also different depending on your ashram. Right? So if you're a brahmachari or a sannyasi and you're always talking to the women or one woman in particular and flirting with her, that's duskritina. But if you're a grahasta, you're supposed to talk to your wife. If you're a grahasta, you're not supposed to say, oh, my dear wife, I can't want to look at your feet. And, right? Like Prabhupada said, the husband should never call his own wife mother. You don't marry your mother. That's irreligious. So he sees other men's wife, wives like his mother, but not his own wife. So there's different kinds of merit also for the different ashramas. So here we see where Prabhupada's saying that what Bharat Maharaj is doing from one perspective is wonderful and laudable, but from Bharat Maharaj's position, it's abominable. And one man's food is another man's poison. You know, sometimes we look through the Shastra and say, what's the best? <laughs> like I have a friend who lived at Radhakun for a while and then decided, no, better to just live in Vrindavan with the other uh, members of ISKCON instead of by myself at Radhakund. And when I was talking to her, she said, well, one can think that because Radhakun's the best place, it's the best for me. Or one can think, I'm living at the best place, therefore I am the best person. And she said these two dangerous mentalities seep in. So one should ask, not just what's the best in theory, but what's the best for me and what's the best for me now? We were talking about this the other day with Bharat Maharaj, that when he was the king, protecting all the animals was his service. But once he gave up the kingdom... Then it was somebody else's service. It wasn't his service anymore. And what may be good for a beginner may be harmful for an advanced person. Just like if we go and preach to people and we get them to give up eating cows. And they say, well, now I don't eat cows anymore. I only eat chicken. We'd say, that's very nice. I mean, we don't have an official chicken eating ceremony for them. This was... <laughs> in relation to another discussion. Uh, sometimes people think, all right, if you can encourage someone to do lesser degrees of sin, you should also have some big celebration, you know. And 
some chicken bless chicken eating blessing ceremony because now you don't eat cows anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to say what this is really about, but if you can figure it out, that's very nice. So people may go from cow eating to chicken eating or from chicken eating to fish eating. You know, and for them it may be a great step forward. But if someone who's already vegetarian starts eating fish, then that's a step backward. Right? Or if someone becomes a vegetarian completely, oh, that's very nice. But if some member of the Hare Krishna movement stops offering their food to Krishna and instead just becomes a vegetarian, that's a fall down. So one has to decide what's good and what's meritorious according to the individual's position. This is one of the beauties, I, I feel, of the Vedic religion over most other religions of the world. Most religions of the world are very black and white. You know, either you are in or you are out. <laughs> either you're going to be saved or you're not going to be saved. You're going to heaven or you're going to hell. And there's one standard for everybody. Everybody has to follow exactly the same standard, and that's it, and there's no gray areas, and there's no individuality. Of course, in practice, they can't actually do that. So most religions have one standard for the clergy and one standard for the lay people, or they actually make the standard of what's good so broad and so vague that all you have to do is say, I believe in Allah and I believe that Muhammad is his prophet. Okay, good, you're a good person. Right? Or, you know, I accept Jesus as my Savior. Okay, fine, that's it. Because otherwise, if they're saying this is the good side and this is the bad side and they have a very high standard of good, then <laughs> what's going to happen to everybody? And sometimes we do this in our Hare Krishna movement also. You know, we'll say, okay, the only thing that's good is all the way up there, and everything else is evil. And then, of course, we can't actually do that. We can't really enforce the highest standards of proper behavior on everybody. Uh, so then what do we do? We start, well, maybe we'll move the line down a little bit make it more inclusive and more general, or we'll redefine something, we'll redefine one of the regulative principles so it's a little fuzzier and more people can be in the good category. And right, That's what we tend to do. Rather, what we should do is we should say, yes, this is the highest, this is the best. In the ultimate, this is the only thing that's actually good. What's the only thing that's actually good? Prema. Anything less than prema, even bhava, is still to some extent a fallen condition. I was just reading this in Chaitanya Charitamrita this morning, where Mahaprabhu was describing how his Guru Maharaj had told him to chant and how he had attained the stage of bhava. And Prabhupada was saying, it was one of those, some of these purports you read that you kind of go, <gasps> saying bhava is the preliminary stage of bhakti. I was like, So we can say that, you know, only prema is actually good. Everything else is bad. Like Prabhupada said, you're a, a diamond thief or a cucumber thief. You're a thief. <laughs> also, and you read it. I, I once really fried out a, a devotee by saying this. So if, I, if I'm going to excuse, please excuse me in advance. I'm just quoting Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. It's not from me. I had someone who wouldn't come to my class for a month because I said this. So in the beginning of our Krishna consciousness, our attachment to Krishna is very small. It's just like a trace. And our attachment to ourself is very great. And only at prema is our attachment to Krishna absolute. But at nista, which is the stage of Brahma-Bhuta, which is for all practical purposes liberation, right? When most of the anartas are gone, which if you read Madhurya Kanamani sounds like it's about 40-50%. Sometimes Prabhupada referring to that stage will say 50, sometimes will say 70%. But definitely not gone, gone. There's still a lot of contamination. Right? At that stage, uh, one is considered liberated. Although still, half of one's mentality is still selfish. So that's the reality. The reality is that there's different stages. That devotee was offended because I was 
saying directly that unless we're on the higher stage, we're mostly selfish. And she said, I'm not selfish. How would you say? But the point is that there's gradations. And what's good at one stage is genuinely good at one stage. You know, Prabhupada at almost every initiation would talk about the ten offenses. But we expect that beginning chanting is offensive. That's our expectation. I mean, if it's not, that's lovely. But we don't expect that someone, the first time they chant the Maha Mantra, is chanting in ecstasy. That's not our expectation. So one should know these different stages. We should know the different stages of bhakti and what to expect at each stage. We should also know from a, we'll say, material point of view. Prabhupada says there's two duties for the devotee, the conditional and the constitutional. talks about this in Bhagavad Gita, especially 930 purport, but other places as well. The constitutional duties are shravanam, kirtanam, vishnu, svaranam, hearing, chanting, remembering about Krishna. Those are the duties of the soul. They go on even in Goloka Vrindavan. And then there's our conditional duties. Conditional duties means, am I five years old or 50 years old? Am I male or female? You know, am I a talented engineer? Am I a talented artist? Those are our conditional duties because that changes. You know, in, in different lifetimes, I have different bodies and a different mentality. I was just uh, hearing Prabhupada say this morning with the story of Kalayavana, how every person, and he says there's so many things, uh, so many places, I'm thinking of compiling a list of all the places where Prabhupada says this, that everyone has some particular talent and ability with, that we're supposed to use to serve Krishna. But that's a part of our conditional nature. I mean, we have an eternal service in our Siddhadeya, so one person's eternal service is bringing fresh water and one is fanning with a chamara. And you can read about each of the different residents of the spiritual world. One is very expert in gemology. One is expert in herbs. And that's for our spiritual body. But in this life, we have different talents and different abilities. I love the letter where Prabhupada wrote that everyone has some extraordinary talent. And to serve Krishna with one's extraordinary talent is success in life. But that's still on the conditional Platform. So we should know the different stages of bhakti, and we should also know where do I stand on the conditional platform. We have to know both things. Because that way we can understand what's meritorious for me now. That we need to know. Bharat Maharaj made a very serious mistake here. He did something that was meritorious for a lower level. He did something that was good according to the criteria of somebody else. And to do something that's good for the criteria of somebody else or someone on the lower stage for you becomes bad. So when we're judging ourselves, and we're supposed to do that, we're supposed to, let's use the word, assess ourselves or evaluate ourselves rather than judge, which has kind of a negative connotation. We have to know what's our measuring stick. Like people say, is this a good school? I don't, I don't know what your measuring stick is. What do you call good? When I ran a school, we used to have this problem, that we had some classes that were very quiet. All the children were sitting at their desk. They had their math book open, and they're just each writing in their papers. And then we had other classes that were very rambunctious where the children were in groups doing geography projects and they're looking things up on the internet and they're looking things up in books and they're cutting and pasting maps and they're drawing maps and they're, they were doing very active things and it was very noisy and they were going from one part of the room to the other and collecting different things. And I would have to, whenever people wanted to visit the school, I had to find out from them what they considered to be good education to decide what time of the day to have them come. Because otherwise, I got very strange results. You know, somebody would come and say, wow, this is a great school because it's so interactive and the children are having so much fun and there's a lot of cooperative learning. And another person coming at the same time would say, that's a terrible school. It's so chaotic. You know, just depending on which class. I had to match the class to the person's concept of good education. 
So we have to have the concept of good person and good devotee for ourselves that matches two things. Spiritually, our actual stage of advancement, and materially, our conditioned nature and our ashram, which is a material thing also. Prabhupada would talk about the ashrams as uh, spiritual stages, but they have to do primarily for most of us with age of the body. Most of us, when we're young, we're students. When we're in the prime of life, we're married. When we're in middle age, we're retired. And in old age, one is renounced. The ashrams are primarily age-related. Although, I don't know, sometimes we do it all crazy. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we people. Anyway, we won't go there. So we need to know both of these things. That way we can actually see, am I making progress? Now, not only for ourselves, but for others. Yesterday we were talking about Atmavan Manyate Jagat, that I tend to see others like myself. I may tend to put my own criteria of what's good and bad on somebody else. But that's not real. Someone else has a different set of talents and abilities than I have. Someone has a different age than I have. They're a different gender than I have. They have a different kind of intelligence than I have. So on the conditional platform, what's good for them is going to be very different than what's good for me. And someone may be at a different stage of bhakti than I am. Therefore, again, what's good for them may be different than what's good for me. I just finished writing the first draft of a... Uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say this. Maybe they're not going to use my name. You know, you never know. Maybe they're just going to make it look like it's from the GBC. So I don't know if I should say this one's getting recorded. All right, well, we'll take a chance. So I just finished writing a, a draft for the GBC website called What is ISKCON? Again, maybe I was supposed to do that as a secret ghostwriter. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I looked at it in three categories. I looked at it historically in sociology, how is, is the definition of ISKCON changed in history, and because of that, how difficult it is to define ISKCON and ISKCON membership at the present time. Then I looked at it as far as the future. What will we call ISKCON if Mahaprabhu's movement has taken over the world? What will ISKCON looked at, look like? And then I have a section as to what is ISKCON depending on your level of consciousness. And I was very happy that I could find one or two quotes from Srila Prabhupada that supported each level of consciousness with regard to ISKCON. So one could see ISKCON as part of the lila of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. One could see ISKCON as part of the preaching mission. This is a way to facilitate preaching Krishna consciousness. You know, you have buildings and you have books and warehouses and prasadam, and it's like a, a base for the preaching. You could see ISKCON as a means for one's own personal purification the ultimate achievement of which would be liberation. I found a quote for that. The Hare Krishna movement is meant for the members achieving liberation. You could see the Krishna consciousness movement as a way to promote material dharma. And I found a quote for that, too. The Hare Krishna movement is meant to promote varnashram dharma, which is, of course, material and ordinary dharma and to become pious. You know? Or you could see the Hare Krishna movement as an organization where people vie for position and power and money, which Prabhupada said, don't think like that. But he did admit that some people do think like that. He said, don't think in terms of big corporations and bureaucracy and personal ambition. But people do think in these different ways. And what I discovered, <laughs> much to my surprise, I suppose, is that you have to let people be where they are. I, I used to, and hopefully I never will again, I don't know if I've learned my lesson, but I used to engage in arguing with people who said that the goal of the Hare Krishna movement was Varnashram. And, of course, they can find quotes to back that up, etc., etc. And I would say, no, the goal of the Hare Krishna movement is Krishna Prema. They said, no, the goal of the Hare Krishna movement is Varnashram. And I would waste my human form of life arguing like this. And the, the way I found out that it was a waste of my energy was when with one of those people I became on the verge of being successful. And the person started wavering in their conviction that the primary goal of the Hare Krishna movement was to develop Varnashram. 
Because when they started to waver, I could see that instead of going to a, a higher step, they were about to fall to a lower step. And so I backed off and I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> this person's understanding is what this person needs to have for the place that they are. And better to let them be where they are and let them come to the next step when they're ready to come to the next step. That if I shake where they are, instead of going up, they're going to fall down. So this is very important in our dealings with others. This is one of the offenses on the holy name, to preach the glories of the holy name to the faithless. In other words, that our preaching should be commensurate with the other person's position. Of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu exhibited this, where to the people in general, he just had mass sankirtan. To the Mayavadis, he spoke about the glories of the holy name in a very general way. And he spoke about Vedanta philosophy. With Ramananda Roy, he spoke about intimate leelas of Radha and Krishna. So that how we encourage others should be very personal. It should be according to the austerities of speech, what's actually going to benefit somebody. Not what's going to show off that, well, I know more than you. Or I'm at a higher stage than you. And actually, if we think that way, we're probably at a lower stage than they are anyway. So we should be very careful from this example of Bharat Maharaj. That from my own self, I should use this natural tendency. I don't even want to say it's a human tendency. It's a spiritual tendency. To want to do what's good. To want to do what has merit. To want to do what is actually beneficial for myself what's going to help myself and others, to assess what that is for me according to who, what body and mind do I have in this life? What stage of life am I in? What stage of bhakti am I in? And to be willing to change that. One of the, the problems that I see among devotees, and maybe this is true for everyone, is that when it's time to move up, we are sometimes resist it. You know, instead of celebrating it. Because moving up means letting go of the thing that was behind. You know, even, even Srila Prabhupada talked like that. How uh, worried he was about leaving his family life and becoming renounced. Right? Prabhupada many times said that. He said, when I understood my spiritual master wanted me to give up family life and take up the Vanaprast and Sanyas ashram, I thought, how can I leave my family life? So this is the, the general tendency so to give up this fear, this verse also talks about becoming fearless. How Bharat Maharaj wanted the deer to be fearlessly in his ashram. So we should want ourselves to be fearless. That I'm not competing with anybody. I, I don't have to be afraid that my standard of what's good is going to be somewhat different than someone else's standard of what's good. And if someone who's higher than me or lower than me criticizes me, well, oh well. <laughs> You know, I have to know what is my own standard and stick to that without fear that I'm going to be manipulated, without, you know, being willing to be manipulated. We've seen this so many times. You know, devotees who allow themselves to be manipulated into taking up what's good for somebody else instead of what's good for them and then falling on their face. So that's the, I, I have to be able to see that. What is good for me? And then what is good for me now? In this moment. And if by doing what's good for me now, I come to the point of being able to do something else. That's the whole idea, isn't it? Isn't that the point? That by reading the fat cat sat on the mat well, then you can go to a higher level of reading. You don't just read that well so you can stay on that level. <laughs> you know, if you're on a, in a journey in a car, the point is to keep moving which shows you're on the right track after five kilometers isn't what shows you're on the right track after 50 kilometers. You don't want to get attached to one piece of the road. <laughs> you want to keep going. So to know what's good for me now without fear and to be able to accept what's good for me at the next step without fear that I have to let go of what was good for me yesterday. And to assess others by their own standards, not to assess others by my standards. Nor to assess others by some theoretical absolute standard. Because that's not reality. 
to, if I'm really going to help others progress and I'm really going to be a friend to others, then I have to be able to assess others for how I'm going to deal with them and help them assess themselves for how they deal with themselves according to their own position. And then we'll have a society. Society means there's many different people doing many different things at many different levels. And as I mentioned briefly before, the Vedic religion allows for that. In fact, the Vedic religion allows even for people who aren't involved in Krishna Bhakti. Now, of course, in our golden age that we're all looking forward to when Mahaprabhu's movement takes over the world, I'm not sure. Are we going to have simply the Sankirtan movement or are we going to have Vedic religion? I really don't know. You know, in the times of Vedic religion, there were people engaged in karmakanda. There were people engaged in demigod worship. There were people reading the different Puranas, not only the higher Puranas, but the different Puranas according to the different modes. And the Vedic religion is so nice. There's a place for everyone. There's even a place for the demons. In the universe, even, there's a place for the demons. Krishna even makes the subterranean heavenly planets for the pious demons. It's not that if you're a demon and an atheist that you have to go to hell. You can go to the demon heaven. There is. There's a demon heaven. You get to be with other demons. You get to be with other atheists. Of course, there's no sunshine, but they don't want sunshine. Demons don't like sunshine. They like to come out at night. Right? Isn't it? And have neon lights. So in the subterranean heavens, there's snake lights. There's some sort of whatever, I don't know how they do it, some sort of mystical variety of neon lights. So it's always like that. So Krishna has a place for everyone. The Vedic religion has a place for everyone. Uh, Something that's good for that person at that level and that will help them to progress to the next level. That's the definition of what's good for me at my level is what will help me to then take the next step. Not what will keep me at my level, that's not something good, but what will facilitate my going on. And when we designed our reading program, it was interesting, I was talking to um, Beverly Randall, who's written 800 children's reading books. I mean, you might look at a little children's reading book and say, well, that's not much, but anyway... Having written 42, 42 of them, I'll say it's, it's very difficult. I can't believe she's written 800. And she's the main consultant for Nelson Thorne's PM, which uh, produces thousands and thousands of children's reading books. And she talked about that when you go up one level, there should only be 5% new material. When you take, you have a reading book, you can read that book. You've mastered it. Then you go to the next level. The next level contains 95% of things you're already good at and only 5% of something that's a challenge. And then the next little book up, same thing. So the challenges are presented in very, very small increments, and there's very subtle differences between one tiny step and another. But pretty soon as you go through all the books, at one point you're able to read. So in the same way, we're piling, Prabhupada would often use this term, piling in heaps. (laughs) We're piling up our bhakti as we're making progress. And at a certain point, it comes to a a tipping point where there's a certain mass (laughs) of piling. And then one comes to these higher stages of bhakti for which we are all aspiring. So thank you very much. Today I went till 8.37. The other day I ended at 8.20 and we still talk till 9, so. Yes. Excuse for what? If it's actually your level, it's not an excuse. If you're doing something below your level, but if it's actually your level, and again, your level means... A, what's appropriate for me now, and B, what will facilitate my moving to the next level. What's on my level is not what will keep me on my level forever. That's not the proper definition of what's on my level. We don't give the child an easy reading book to keep them in an easy reading book. We give them an easy reading book to facilitate their, as rapid as possible, progress to the next level. 
So if someone took a step too early, well, then they may have to look in the mirror and step back. What about irreversible decisions? Well, there's that purport in the eighth canto where Prabhupada doesn't consider sannyasa irreversible decision. I mean, I, I think you have to... There, it's it really interesting in the Nectar of Devotion where Prabhupada defines over-endeavor as taking spiritual vows that one cannot keep. Now, you know, in some cases you really wouldn't want to go back. Like if you've already gotten married and have five kids and you've decided, well, I don't know if I can handle this. It's not that you say, well, I'm going to go back to the brahmacharya ashram and abandon my wife and kids. You know, in that case, sometimes you may need to have someone who helps you quickly accelerate to the level that you're externally on. You know, it's not, it might not be pleasant, but oh well. That may be the, the price of that you jumped ahead too soon. Yeah, and sometimes it can be like that. If you say, whoops, I took on more responsibility than I actually can handle. I took on something that I can't handle, but I'm in a situation where if I let go of it, the consequences for me or for others would be dire. Then someone's going to have to help accelerate you. Or someone's going to have to help accelerate you. And then you've got to be willing to go through the acceleration process, which... You know, it has its thrills, I suppose. Feeling the wind going through your hair at 500 kilometers per hour, but, you know, it's a little scary too. So I've had to do that as a teacher. You know, I've gotten, when I was, a, when I was running the school, I often, gosh, often got kids who were f- far behind their age. And if you had them just go at a normal rate, they wouldn't finish secondary school till they were 30 years old. And, you know, so you, you had to go to them and say, would you like to accelerate so that your academic le- level will match your age level? And, of course, they all say yes. But then when you do it, some of them go, well, I don't know if I can do that. But if they can do it, I mean, I had one student who came five years behind his age level. And within two years, we had caught him up. So that means in two years, he did seven years' worth of work. So it can be done. But you have to look at the particular situation. If, I, if I'm honest and I step back to my real level, is anybody going to be hurt? Is there, am I going to do any damage? And if the answer is no, then be honest and step back. And if the answer is yes, people are going to be damaged, then try to accelerate. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't, and, and sometimes there's a, there's a high price for jumping forward. I, what can I say? I mean, sometimes there's a really high price for somebody jumping forward because then at a certain point they can't maintain it and they have to move back and people get hurt. So be careful. But don't, make, don't be so careful that you never go forward. <laughs> That's also a mistake. You, know, you don't want to become so cautious that you just, well, I'm just going to stay on the, karma, on the platform worshiping the demigods because, you know, I can't go forward. Yes. What's good? Yeah. Will be? Of course. You can't. You can't, not if you're having an expanding preaching movement. Impossible. You have to let the institution exist on different levels, because it does. They do. They can't be helped. It's just, if you want to have an expanding preaching movement... It must be like that. There's this, I don't see an alternative. If you could think of an alternative, I'd be very interested to know it, and I think a lot of other people would also be very interested to know it. But if you have a preaching movement that's expanding and constantly bringing in new people, 
who we presume most of whom will be on a beginning level. And if you're bringing in people with all different kinds of motivations, then you're going to have a large number of people who are functioning at lower levels. It must be. You have to be, by definition. Krishna consciousness is not checked by anything material. Well, you as an individual, you have to see as you're progressing what's going to be best for your own progress in Krishna consciousness. And part of that is that you need to seek out the association of persons that are on your level and who are also higher than you. You need to seek out the associations of people on your level for friendship. It's nice to have, you know, journey buddies. It is, isn't it? Like, he got, he left. But like I'm traveling with my grandson. I, I was traveling alone for so many years. It's nice to have a journey buddy, you know? It is. It's nice to have somebody who's traveling with you. And it's also nice to have some people who are ahead of you that can let you know where to go. And, and let you know, you know, there's a ditch over here and there's a rest area over here. and Just like there's travel correspondence. They let you know when you go to this country, this is a nice hotel to stay and this is a nice restaurant to eat. So it's nice to have people ahead of you on the path. They've already been there. Like Bart Maharaj. You know, he's providing a nice lesson. <laughs> so he's ahead of at least me. I don't know about any of you, but at least me. And so he's providing a nice lesson. Here's a trap. Don't fall into it. I fell into it, and this is my sad story. So it's good to have people who are ahead of you also. And then for people who are behind you, just be, be kind and encourage them to come up, but don't make intimate friendship with them. And if you make intimate friendship with them, yes, it will drag you down. That's, that's, each of us have that personal responsibility. And by the way, it's, it's interesting. I don't want to get too specific here, but... It's really interesting. I was in Vrindavan, was it last year? And someone from the Radhadesh community was there. And she had gone to some various programs. And she was making the point that different programs attracted different kinds of people. I mean, as an analogy, in Iskan Soho, in the heart of London, so they they have a Sunday feast program where they distribute prasadam. They have a restaurant where they distribute prasadam. Then they have a lunch program where they distribute prasadam. And then they have a go-out-on-the-street food-for-life program where they distribute prasadam. So four programs. And the people who come to one don't necessarily come to the other. The lunch program is free. It's the breakfast leftovers plus the Rajbog Maha. But it's the leftovers from breakfast and the Rajbog Maha. And people give a little donation and there's a basic class. People who go to the restaurant don't usually come to the lunch program. It's a different material class of people. And the people who come to the Sunday feast are a little bit different class also, although some of them will also go to the restaurant. So in our Hare Krishna movement, we also have different programs for different kinds of people. And they, they attract different kinds of people. It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, after, after this devotee said that to me, I was like, oh yeah. You know, the people who go on one program... They, they tend to be of a certain mentality. And people who aren't of that mentality, they don't like that program. They, they're just not there. And the people, I was, I was just at, uh, at the Govardhan retreat. And I would say, although there are people there who are fairly new to Krishna consciousness in terms of their years of practice, it really attracts people who are really serious. First of all, you have to pay a chunk of money to go there. You have to pay like 160 euros. So that weeds out some people immediately. And then you have to stay at Govardhan. You know, staying at Govardhan means you've got to walk down the stairs early in the morning, wait while the guys scoop some hot water out of the pot into your bucket, carry the bucket of hot water upstairs. You know, that weeds out some people right there. And it was a very. Um, the people who were there were very serious. You could tell from the kirtans. The, the, kirtan, the nature of the kirtans was very focused. And people attend. I mean, there's some socializing that goes on, but people are mostly there attending the classes. 
They're, most people attend all of the classes. They're not running off here and there. There's not much place to run off to here and there in Govardhan. <laughs> You're not going to go shopping in Govardhan town. <laughs> so there's, not, there's nothing else to do except maybe go up to Radhakund. You know, take a little park around around Govardhan. So it attracts a certain kind of people. So we also have that in ISKCON, although, you know, there's many things going on. There are different kinds of programs. There are, you know, and, and you find, what do they say, water seeks its own level. You find your own level and you find your association that's right for you. And that will, as you go on in Krishna consciousness, what was right for you will change. And something that was nourishing and enlivening and exciting after a while becomes dry and you go on to something else. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, well, first of all, you shouldn't be doing it completely by yourself. This is not just a self-administered and self-assessed questionnaire. Uh, we have Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. So the Shastra describes, remember, we're looking at two kinds of assessment. One is conditional, one is constitutional. So on the conditional side, that's pretty easy. There is a lot of material means of assessing your personality type. None of them are perfect. Um, there is a Vedic standard for that. There are two Vedic standards for that. One is Ashra, one is Varna, and one is Ayurveda. But I don't know of any assessment tool either for Varna or Ayurveda that I could just heartily recommend and say, oh, yeah, this will tell you exactly what your Varna is or this will tell you what your Ayurvedic psychological type is. But in other words, the Vedas have some idea of assessing your material type. So there are different, uh, different tests you can take to figure that out. And you can look at your life and see, what am I good at? What do I like? Uh, I don't have the time to get into this in depth, but you don't want to look at that as a, in a holistic way, but more in parts. Like, do I like being with people or do I like doing tasks? Do I like being by myself? Do I like being part of a team? Do I like being in the background? Do I like being in the front? Do I like working on my own? Do I like things that are fairly easy and that I already know how to do, or do I like a lot of challenge? Do I like solving puzzles on my own, or do I like things where it's all laid out for me and I just follow the directions? Um, do I like things where I do the same thing every day, or do I like a lot of variety? Do I like things that involve some risk, or do I like things that are very safe? Um, they're just, you know, a whole kind of... When you look at the components, pick a few things that you've really liked, that when you did them you thought, I'm alive! <laughs> and then... Tease out the components of those things. It should tell you what your, what your nature is, what your constitutional position is. Sometimes you can't find that out, though, without training, which is one of the reasons why in every society there are schools. Sometimes you have to have that you know, art teacher who brings out the artist in you that you didn't know exists, or whatever it may be. You know, there's sometimes we have a propensity we don't know about until we meet the right person and circumstances. So that tells you something of your conditioned nature. Other parts of our conditioned nature are gender. There's nice explanations in Bhagavatam. What are the duties by gender? Others is by age. As I said, generally, ashram should be by age. You should generally know what ashram you should be in according to your age. Generally, right now, that's not always a good indicator. People now are sometimes in very peculiar situations by age. But generally, you should be able to tell that. And as far as ashram, you should also know, you know, what do I value more, security or freedom? If you're willing to sacrifice security for freedom, you belong in one of the renounced ashrams. If you're willing to sacrifice freedom for security, you belong in the grahastha ashram. That's one indicator. There's others. And then which of the renounced ashrams, so forth and so on. So there's, and you do this with the help of guru, with the help of sadhus, with the help of looking at the shastras. And then as far as our constitutional position, we've got, I've identified 18 measures of spiritual progress, 18 different ways of measuring spiritual progress given in the Shastras. And Dwijamani Prabhu told me that there's many, 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 many more in the Upanishads. So, you know, we've got the Shraddha to Prema, we've got the offensive clearing and pure stage of chanting, 
we have the progression in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. We have three definitions of kanista, majjama, and uttama, adhikari, one by faith, one by scriptural knowledge, one by relationships, and there's a lot more. So you can look at any of those assessment tools. So there's at least 18 assessment tools that you can look at, and you look at those in consultation with trusted advisor, which is what guru is supposed to be, uh, but people who are in that relationship to you, and you help assess at what stage you're on. And it may not be a cut-and-dried thing. Like I was, I was reading in Chaitanya Charitamrita this morning, where Prabhupada was saying that a person may have developed some of the inner symptoms of bhava and yet still not behave very nicely. And he said such a person is not actually at the perfect stage yet. So that may also be the case, that you may look at one of these devotional assessment tools and say, well, in this area of my life, I'm over here. But in this area of my life, I'm over here. And in this area of my life, I'm over here. And we do tend to progress kind of like that. Like one person may be better in math than in reading. So you may not fit really neatly into a box. So then you may know, okay, what's my proper behavior in terms of maybe in prasadam I'm at a really low level and I'm throwing prasadam in the trash bin and I think it's ordinary food and I'm very disrespectful to prasadam, but maybe my relation with the shastra is at a much higher level. So then I may have different ways of progressing in each level. So then one, we need mentors and we need gurus and we need counselors and, and friends to help us understand how to apply the criteria of the Shastra to my situation. And that's not something we want to be doing every minute of every day, but it's something we should be doing at least periodically. Just like in a class, you know, we're, we're doing some sort of informal uh, formative assessment on an ongoing basis, but then we also have some summative assessments. So there should be some times where we really take stock of our lives. And by the way, if you don't do voluntarily, Krishna will force you to do this. And there should be some times where you take stock of your life and say, okay, where am I? Is that all right for a really like three-minute answer to something that could be a three-day seminar? It gives you some idea? I'm a little confused as to what you're having a hard time. You're having a hard time more with the organic gradual development or with the instant thing? How do they go together? I could give you several answers. Let's see. I've got three minutes. So when I was a kid in school, I generally learned things very quickly. And I could never understand why the teachers would repeat the same thing over and over and over again. I remember in secondary school, I had a required class in American history, and I thought, I've been learning that Columbus discovered America in 1492 since I was six years old. Why are you teaching me this again? I thought, e either you must think that I'm really, really a bad student, or you must think your teachers are terrible or something, that you have to keep teaching the same over and over again. But when I became a teacher, <clears throat> then I could understand why that was done, that I had people who were 14, 15 and didn't know the difference between a noun and a verb and an adverb, although I'd been teaching it to them for five or six years. And I just saw that most people don't care. They just don't care. Okay, noun, verb, whatever. And then they forget it and they go on to whatever they care about. And so they don't really learn it. And I remember one of my students, when she was 12, all of a sudden, she learned grammar. It was like instant. 
All of a sudden, she knew grammar. And I talked to her about it, and she said, I got tired of studying the same things over and over again, and I decided I was just going to sit down and learn it. And then I didn't teach her grammar anymore. When she was in second, I didn't give her any more grammar classes. It wasn't required. So sometimes the instant learning is there because a person becomes materially exhausted and says, I'm tired of this slow process. Let's go. By the way, be very careful. Um, Don't say that unless you mean it because Krishna will very quickly show you that you don't mean it. And his process of showing you that you don't mean it will not be one that you want to repeat, which will be the whole point. So, you know, you don't want to go to Krishna and say, okay, I'm ready for full surrender now. Let's do it. And then he'll say, okay, what about this thing? And he won't even take it away. He'll just shake it. He'll just go, what about this thing? You go, ah, forget it. I changed my mind. I'll take the gradual process. And I, that used to happen to me, as I say, with accelerating kids in school. You know, the kids come and you give them a diagnostic test and they're two years behind in academics and they say, I want to get caught up. I say, okay, <laughs> this is what we have to do. And most of them, after two weeks, would come back and go, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, modify it a little bit. But when, when you can come to the point, which we all need to come to, by the way, when you can come to the point that it's genuine, that you really mean it, and you can go to Krishna and say, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I don't, I, I'm done. Let's just do it. Let, let's be finished with this thing. And you really mean it. Then it can be instant. When you mean whatever it costs, and you think of the worst possible cost, and you don't care. You consider that the worst possible case scenario, the highest cost, would be a very small price to pay for what you're getting. And you can come to that point that you say, if, I, if, in the, if surrender to you means that I lose all of my physical ability, all of my physical health, all of my mental intellectual ability, all of my friends, all of my wealth, all of my standing in the community, whatever we're afraid of losing, that we're all going to lose anyway when we die, by the way. That, you know, when I come to the point and say, even if surrender to you means losing all of that, which it probably won't mean that, but even if that's what it means, I'm ready to do it. And I can really look at all those fears and say, I'm such a high, I have no fears. Whatever it takes. Then it's instant. So how long does it take you to get to that point? Can you get to that point in one minute? Well, yeah, in theory. Will you get to that point in one minute? Probably not. Probably we'll get to that point by gradually building our faith over, sorry to say, probably many lifetimes. You know, does it have to be that way? No. That depends on you. Does that make sense? It depends on you. It, it, you know, what do you want? How accelerated can you handle it? And if you go too slowly, you'll, you'll get, Krishna will push you, by the way. You know, ultimately, oh, we talk about teachers and mentors. We have an ultimate teacher and mentor in the heart. And he'll push you as hard as he feels you can go without falling off the side of the road. And he'll push you back if you try to go too fast. He's very good at it. You know, ask any of us who've been in this process for a while. But he's really, really good at that. He's really good at giving you a push when you're stuck. And he's really good at holding you back when you're anxious to do something that you shouldn't be doing. And sometimes the lessons are, you know, if we're really insistent, sometimes the lessons are a little awkward and, and embarrassing. But I'm thinking of one, one devotee I know who wrote me, my Krishna consciousness has become very dry. You know, it's just like a desert. And the course of the conversation, he said, well, I've been praying to Krishna to go easy on me. And I said, well, that's your problem. You've been asking Krishna to make it slow. And he said, well, I'm afraid to go faster. I said, well, then you're going to be dry because you're staying in a stage longer than you're meant to. Two weeks later, he got cancer. So, you know, which he's recovered from apparently. But that kind of accelerated him a little bit. So we have a very good teacher. And and when we say, you know, no, I want to go slower than I'm able to. I really want to go slower than I'm able to. You know, he may push. And if you say, I'm ready to go faster than I'm really able to, then he may say, ready for that. But when it really comes to the point that we're ready, we're ready. And my other really quick answer is that there is a tipping point. 
So I was just reading this. If you take a piece of paper, let's say it took a piece of paper as big as the temple room, and you folded it, and then you folded it, and then you folded it, and then you folded it, and you did that 50 times, how thick would your paper be? It would be 93 million miles thick. It would reach the sun. So when you first start folding it over, the, the changes, it's a geometric progression. When you first start doing it, it's not very big, but at a certain point, your paper suddenly gets much bigger because it suddenly doubles in size and suddenly doubles in size. So our accumulation of bhakti is something like that. Prabhupada talks about piling and heaps. And Prabhupada talks about piling and heaping up bhakti until suddenly there's a tipping point. Prabhupada does speak like that, though he doesn't use the word tipping point. He doesn't use that term but he, he talks about like putting money in a bank and compounding interest. You, know, you put in some money in the bank, it gets interest. Then you put it in with the interest. Then that gets interest, and you have compounded interest. And suddenly you're going to have a lot of money. So it appears like suddenly, but it really was, it appears like some huge jump. By the way, this happens in any material endeavor also. They say the standard is 10,000 hours for a material skill, that then you jump to being a master. And we see this as a teacher. You know, you're, you're practicing, 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 and then at a certain point, and that point varies for each individual, there's some sort of an instant, ah, that, that you, there's a huge jump that takes place. But that huge jump was an effect of the, of the practice that went on before it. But, you know, you're, you're, you're going like this, like this, like this, and then it was, oh, oh. <laughs> and there's little ones like that, and there's also a big one like that. So that's a, a, another quite different answer to the question. All right, I have to stop now or I'm going to be in big trouble and will never invite me to speak again. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.